Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, I Will Tell, with a message entitled, Getting Prepared to Give an Answer. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. dreamt about the day when it would be impossible to live in this country without having to decide what to do with Jesus. That is, to quote another, I have a dream. I have a dream that every man, woman, and child in this country will hear the gospel message and be confronted with an invitation of the gospel. They'll know what the gospel is, know what the gospel demands, and they'll need to choose. In order to get to that place, Christians in our country will have to begin talking about Jesus all the time, at work, in our schools, across the back fence, among our naturally occurring friendship networks. But all of us know a dialogue about Jesus, or a dialogue about faith, or a dialogue about the gospel is not just a one-way affair. If we want honest, open, respectful conversations, it means we both speak and listen. All Christians want to share with others about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. But some people are not ready to hear, and that may be for a number of reasons. I want you to imagine the truth of the gospel as a great and ancient castle. But before you can get to the castle, there are not just one but a series of moats in the way. You can tell people that they should get to the castle and consider the castle, but they're looking at the moats and they say, you know, those moats are uncrossable. Well, we correct them saying, it's not about the moats, it's about the castle, but all the while they're looking at the moats. You know, I say this because there have been some evangelistic methods that teach that we should avoid certain questions. So when someone asks a question like, well, what about evolution? We should find a way of steering them back to the cross. We say, let's leave that question for another time. Let's talk about what God has done in Jesus, get them to the castle. But my thinking is, that when someone is seriously examining the faith, we must deal with the questions that people are actually asking. I don't trust organized religion. Aren't Christians intolerant of other people? Isn't faith the opposite of reason and evidence? Doesn't the presence of suffering argue against a good and all-powerful God? Isn't church boring? Hasn't Christianity been disproved? Isn't the Christian faith in decline and will soon be irrelevant? I don't think I like or trust Christians. Aren't religions responsible for so much hatred and were all manner of wars inspired by religion? See, those are the moats that prevent someone from getting to the castle. And somehow I believe we're going to have to put some drawbridges across the moats. We need to help people to see that the moat is not actually uncrossable, but we're going to have to take the moat seriously. Now, of course, we begin by forming friendships with non-believers and by talking about our faith. Unless we do those two things, the moats will simply remain and the castle will always seem distant. But if we enter into a dialogue, we may be asked hard questions, questions that take some insight and some thought. Of course, none of that's new. You know, in the early church, all manner of misconceptions developed around the gospel, and these misconceptions kept some people from considering the claims of the faith. As you know, the Christian faith began among the Jews, and one of the first questions Christians had to respond to was, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, how could he be defeated by the Romans and die on a cross? 
See, that's a great question, and an answer needs to be given. But there are other questions also from the Jewish community. How can Christians not make circumcision a necessity and still claim adherence to the faith of Abraham? Don't Christians disregard the law of Moses, and aren't they therefore a heretical sect? See, those were the moats that kept Jewish people from the castle. And as the gospel went out into the Gentile world, more questions and more misconceptions. Very early on, Christians were being charged with, well, with being atheists. Well, that sounds surprising to us, but that's because they refused to acknowledge the reality of the gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon. Well, were they atheists? Well, that was a moat. Then there was the belief that when Christians celebrated communion, known in those days as a love feast, well, a rumor began to circulate that it was in fact an orgy. Then came the charge of cannibalism. Christians said they ate flesh and drank blood at their love feast. Who knew what evil they did at these meetings? Another moat. A very serious charge was that Christians were anarchists and revolutionaries because they refused to pledge their loyalty to Caesar. That is, they would not proclaim that Caesar was Lord. This was a very dangerous charge as it would soon bring the wrath of the Roman Empire down on their heads. Another moat, a very large one. You know, I want to do a brief study of something that was said to believers by the Apostle Peter to help them in their gospel presentations. In the book of 1 Peter was written somewhere in the mid-60s AD. Peter writes his book to encourage Christians who were living in the north and west in what was then called Asia Minor and what we now call the nation of Turkey. And these people were beginning to encounter opposition. And when these people, who were largely Gentiles, first came to Christ, the first thing they did, well, was they stopped worshiping the gods of their empire. It changed their behavior, but it was painful because now they were viewed as being unpatriotic. But there was more. They also stopped worshiping the gods over their cities, so people charged that the Christians were turning against their city. But many of these people, new believers, were also skilled tradespeople. And in those days, trade guild meetings were held in the temple in which the worship of idols was a part of it. And these new believers were not there anymore, and the economic ramifications were instant. People were boycotting their shops. But there's still more. Extended family gatherings also took place in pagan temples, and again, the Christians were absent. And what's fascinating is that many non-Christian people who attended the temple did not really believe in those gods either, but they came and offered tokens of worship as a sign of civic allegiance, and believers refused. They taught what Paul taught, 1 Corinthians 10, 20-21. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So they weren't eating at the temple anymore, and the results were predictable. Social ostracism, insults, public shaming, economic persecution. And as Christians were reeling in a world that thought them to be anti-social troublemakers, where great moats existed to prevent people from getting to the gospel, Peter writes them to explain how they are to act. So against that background, we come to our text, which is 1 Peter 3, 13 to 16. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So let's consider the context. You know, verse 13 asks, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good? Well, at the outset, the believers in Asia Minor would have said, lots of people are going to harm us. Our neighbors, our city, the trade guilds, the temple, the Roman government were so vulnerable. But what Peter is trying to do in verse 13 is to reinforce behavior among Christians that will lessen misunderstanding and that will endear God's people to the wider pagan culture. No one, he says, persecutes people for being gentle, for being kind, for being loving and caring. And that's the kind of behavior that he's talking about here. The culture you live in may misunderstand your faith, but if you can become known as people of graciousness, you're going to be halfway home. And by the way, that's still so important today. Nothing is so disarming as a person who, well, forgives their enemies, as someone who looks for opportunities to bless others, as someone who volunteers in social endeavors, someone who helps in their own public school, someone who looks for ways to encourage others. Those kinds of attitudes open the door for the gospel. But where Christians are seen as ungracious, well, in that case, the size of the moat only grows larger and to the way to the castle, to the gospel, well, it's uncrossable. So that's the first step in building bridges. And then Peter adds, even if you suffer for righteousness sake, and the grammar here suggests this, in the unlikely event that people do persecute you for being gracious, in that case, don't be discouraged. In fact, says Peter, you are in fact blessed. We need to learn more. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. These efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. You know, whatever stage of life you're in, you've probably considered the impact you want to leave on your family, on your community, or in the world. Providing sustainable support to the Back to the Bible Canada ministry is one key way you can have an impact on the lives of thousands. We have a goal of adding 331 new monthly givers to our new monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship. Won't you help us reach that goal and ensure the message of God's Word continues to be available and its message continues to transform lives? To learn more about the program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship. How is it that in an increasingly hostile culture, you can be free of intimidation? Because, says Peter, in your heart, you're regarding Christ as Lord. That is, he's fully equal with the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity. He rules over all, and as ruler, all things are subject to him. 
Even the hostility of your culture is subject to Christ. But of course, Peter's not just telling us to regard Christ as Lord, but to regard Christ the Lord as holy. What's he trying to communicate? You know, there's a background to that statement. It comes from Isaiah 8, 13, which says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. If you're going to fear anybody, fear God. Fear Christ. Regard him as holy and let your fear be of him alone. And once that happens, it will take your fear of people away. Even people who might intimidate and persecute you. Only the one who fears God can know what it is to fear no man. So we need to be prepared to answer anyone who asks for the hope that we have. So let's start with a principle. Believers in Christ must be courageous. And if the truth is told, there are some believers who are actually intimidated by the world. And so if that is you, you might say to yourself, well, the best thing to do is to believe in the gospel, but to keep it fairly private. You've been flying under the radar, so to speak, and and up till now, very few unbelievers you interact with know that you're a believer, or even if they do, you've never entered into a dialogue with them, and the reason? Fear. But if you learn to regard Jesus the Lord as holy, it's going to give you a courage to enter into the arena of discussing your faith openly with others. But there's another feature that Peter's already mentioned. When we enter into a dialogue, it sure helps to have a good reputation with people. Look at verse 15b. First, always be prepared. So what's behind that statement is that Christians have already thought about some of the questions that non-Christians are asking. And they know about some of the misconceptions that non-Christians do have about the faith. And they've become deeply intimate with their faith, and they're well-grounded. And what's more, they've begun to grasp that there is a rational basis for their faith. So please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that unless you're educated, don't attempt evangelism. But I am saying that when you begin to share your faith, people will ask you questions that you won't be able to answer. And when that happens, you can do one of three things. One, you can fake it. You can make up answers as you go. That's always bad. Second, you can say, well, all those questions are just from the evil one. This is often a failure to listen. Or third, you can decide to get prepared. You can begin to ask and to study and to understand, and you can get prepared along the way. So let's go to that next phrase. The word here is to give a defense. And the Greek word for defense is the word apologia. From that word comes an area of Christian studies called Christian apologetics. It's a field of Christian theology that is devoted to giving a rational defense for the Christian faith. And people in the field of apologetics often say things like, well, the heart can't rejoice in what the mind rejects as false, and helping the believer think and helping the thinker believe. The idea behind it is that sometimes apologetics, which we would think is all about evangelism, in fact has another benefit. Sometimes the study of apologetics is a great help for Christians themselves because many of us have the very same questions that the world has, and we'd love to hear an answer. You know, questions like, is it ever okay to have doubts? And what role does scientific evidence play into my faith? You know, very early on after coming to Christ, I struggled with my own doubts. I wondered to what extent I had truly come to believe simply because of some of the struggles that I had. 
was there any objective reason for believing? You know, how did I really know there was a God? How did I really know that Jesus was the Son of God? How did I really know that the Bible was the Word of God? Were these the kind of things I should simply accept in faith, that is, without any corroborating evidence? Or was faith actually something that rested on the sufficiency of the evidence? I can't tell you how delighted I became as I was discipled by Christian teachers who believed that asking hard questions wasn't wrong, it was welcomed. And so I began to read. Very early on, look, I'm an old guy, but I read two books that really changed my life, and both from a theologian named Francis Schaeffer. The books were entitled, The God Who Is There, and then He Is There and He Is Not Silent. Now, Francis Schaeffer's been dead for a long time, and I still recommend those books to university students. I think it has profoundly shaped me in the early years. But out of that came a conviction that the Christian faith was defendable. Indeed, it was reasonable. I could answer the hard questions. In fact, it did more. It invited non-Christians to face their own hard questions. Indeed, they too needed to defend their worldview. And as I went off to university, I was constantly defending my faith and asking non-believers to do the same with their worldview. And those years were for me some of the best years of my life as I learned to depend more and more on the truths of Scripture. And out of that was born a conviction. All Christians can be trained to defend their faith. We don't need to be afraid of tough questions. In fact, we should not only answer them, but we should ask some of our own tough questions as well. And so remember where we've been. One, we must be courageous. We must learn to speak about our faith. And we need to ask others to speak about their faith. Make faith a part of your conversation. And two, we must have honorable conduct so that we can't be charged with bad, ungracious attitudes. But we must also be prepared to give real answers. Peter speaks about making a defense of our faith when asked. Now, notice the last part of this verse. You know, here they ask you for a reason for the hope within you. I notice that in this verse, the non-Christian is doing the asking. And that's because the believer has been bold enough to share. And as a result, the unbeliever asks. You know, perhaps the conversation goes this way. You know, I've noticed you refuse to pour out libations to Caesar and call him Lord. And I also noticed that you've expressed your willingness to honor the emperor. How do you reconcile that? I recently had a conversation with a university professor, and it went this way. He said, how do you define faith? I've heard that faith means believing in something that can't be substantiated by evidence. Is that what you believe? And with that question came a dialogue. See, what I was being asked to do was to give a reason for the hope that is within me. Listen to how God addresses us in Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. See, I have noticed that this offer, which is an offer to come and be forgiven, begins with an offer to reason. All people who share their faith should be trained to use the Scripture as we talk about our faith. But we are not quoting Scripture as if it were a missile or a club to win an argument. We're quoting Scripture in a way that not only appeals to the heart, but also to the mind. You see, in order to enter a dialogue that's genuinely fruitful, people have to feel that they're being taken seriously. So we must be reasonable. But Peter's still not done. He adds one more feature. Peter says, when we give a defense, we must do so out of gentleness, respect, and fear. 
not fear of people, but fear that we might misrepresent the gospel. You see, no matter who the person is, and regardless of their perspective, they are still human beings made in the image of God. Respect is demanded. And finally, Peter speaks of having a a good conscience. That is, when the conversation is done, can we in good conscience say, we've represented Christ well, and we've treated the people we've communicated with as image bearers of God. They know they've been respected, and they also know they've been loved. And that's our commitment. See, we will tell, we will pray, we'll ask God to give us a zeal for evangelism. We will declare the deeds of God. But while we make a new commitment that we will tell, let's also get an attitude of faith. I will tell, but I will also believe. I will believe in the power of the gospel. I will also believe that when I tell, my words will not be in vain. The words that I speak that are God's words will bear fruit. And when I go home to my Savior, I'm not going home alone. I'm going to see those who have come to Christ through my ministry. Would you like that to be said about you? Then begin today by simply offering a prayer to the Lord. Say to the Lord, I've not done it up till now, but I'd like to begin. I will tell so the next generation also hears of the great things of the Lord. John, thanks so much for the series. Uh, Let me ask you this, though, in closing. I'm thinking that the point of this study is that we need to take telling others about God, about the gospel, seriously. But how do we create a new conviction about evangelism? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know the answer to that, quite frankly. Uh, I do know that the Holy Spirit needs to do that, and I think we need to recognize it is an imperative. God demands it of us, and uh, I think that love for others should also compel us. I think uh, there are always two reasons why we don't share. And one is we probably have a theology that doesn't recognize how lost people are, so that can be a reason. So we've you know, gotten ourselves to believe that maybe the lost aren't lost after all. Then the other thing happens is that we just don't care. I mean, there's no compassion, there's no love, there's no sensing the need that is in people's lives. So you know, my response is to simply say, ask God to give you a deep heart of love. Think about the love of the Father for the lost. Then say, Lord, give me the same love that you have. Thanks, John, for the series, I Will Tell. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Ricardo wrote, Thank you and all the men and women of Back to the Bible Canada for the great work you do. You continue to inspire my spiritual growth, and I'm grateful God has given me the opportunity to contribute. All praise and glory to God. Ricardo, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and perhaps the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? Well, with your financial contribution or by becoming a monthly partner through our 1119 Fellowship, we can continue to make Bible teaching you can trust accessible to our nation. 
If you'd like to be part of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.